Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode of this podcast, we read a saga, talk about its story and themes, and then, and then, well, we do it all over again <laughs> in the next episode. Um, last time we covered the first half of Drop Lagos on a saga, and we're back for more. That's right. We, we debated whether to try and get this saga into a single episode, but then we decided there's just too many cool things we want to cover. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it, of course, it caps off our trilogy of sagas set in the northeast of Iceland. I think we were doomed to get long-winded from the start. Yes, and uh, we should start out by explaining what exactly was in the first half of the saga. Okay, um, let's do the condensed version. Should we break out the radio voices? Ah, uh, you know, it's been a while, but I think we could try. All right. <laughs> Last time on Drop Lagersana Saga. This saga introduced several metric tons worth of people in its first chapters. But the narrative quickly coalesces around Man About Town, Helgi Asbjarnason, and his erstwhile enemies, Helgi and Grim Droplogerson. Helgi Droplogerson learns law in order to get Asbjarnason's goat by taking up one case after another against him. He wins quite a few cases in his effort to wind up his rival. But although Asbjarnason suffers public embarrassment, his support isn't diminished. When Helgi Droplogerson conspires with his mother and her servant to kill his stepfather, Asbjarnason seizes on the dastardly deed as his opportunity to take legal revenge. He wins a lawsuit for the killing, and has Droplogerson sentenced to three years outlawry. But Helgi Droplogerson and his brother Grimm give the court judgment the old Bronx cheer. Helgi remains in Iceland, making himself a target for violence if Helgi Asbjarnason cares to press the point. And care to press the point he does, planning to intercept the Droplogersons when they're away from home and vulnerable. I missed those voices. That makes one of us. All right. So <laughs> this is the second part of the Droplogos on the saga. And uh, that means we've already gotten to know Helgi Asbjörnsson and the Droplogersons. Yeah. Uh, to put it briefly, the Droplogersons are a study in contrasts. Although both are large, active men, Helgi is a traveler with no interest in farm work. He's socially outgoing and an assertive, even combative person. The sort of person who learns the law just so he can more, be more effectively annoying to people he doesn't like. That's pretty well illustrated by Helgi's legal work on behalf of Hravenkel, the nephew of Helgi Asbjarnason mm -hmm. and his partner in the chieftaincy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Helgi Droplogerson, uh, you may remember, was able to manipulate the minutia of a case between the uncle and nephew, with the result that Asbjarnason lost control of his own chieftaincy to his nephew Hravenkel for several years. That was fun. Yeah, it was a, a neat bit of legal chicanery. Now, the younger mm -hmm. Droplogerson brother, Grimm, is a very different man from his brother. He's quieter and an excellent farmer, stronger than his brother, but more even-tempered and less experienced with weapons. Mm -hmm. We really haven't gotten to know Grimm as well yet, but uh, hopefully that'll change in the second half of our story. And how about their enemy, Helgi Asbjarnason? Well, Asbjarnason is a chieftain, or at least a chieftain partner with his nephew. He has a great deal of social capital, but he's a little reticent about dealing with problems in his district. Sort of. Yeah, I don't I don't know if he's reluctant to get involved. He is a member of the Gothar, mm -hmm. the, the chieftain class, and like any decent chieftain, he has a lot going on. The fact that he tries mm -hmm. to keep the Droplogersons from becoming his problem probably says as much about his opinion of their unimportance as it does about his reticence. Yeah, but I don't know whether that distinction would mean much to the people in his district. Chieftains are politicians, and as Bjarnason can't be thrilled with the public perception about the way he's been treated by the Droplogersons, and especially Helgi. Absolutely, yeah. And there's a moment in the first part of the saga that we had to skip for time that summarizes the conflict nicely between the two Helgis, and I think it fits nicely for this episode. Oh, 
Oh, you mean the uh, Droplogerson's mistake at court, right? That's right, yes, and it'll become mm-hmm. relevant in this episode. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, the scene takes place at the local assembly, and Helge Droplogerson was conducting a minor legal proceeding, and then he misspoke. There's a little bit mm-hmm. of laughter, but Helge Esbjarnason is there, and he laughs loudly. Yeah, now he's absolutely trying to embarrass Droplogerson. It's, it's basically the oral equivalent of a sarcastic golf clap. <laughs> and uh, Droplogerson knows this. He responds by saying, mm-hmm. I see Hrofenkel standing there behind you, Helgi. That's no discredit to me, but I can tell you this. There will come about a meeting between the two of us that we won't both be unharmed before it's over. I don't fear those threats, because I have every intention of heaping stones on your head at that meeting. Yeah, so these two really don't like each other. That's a great threat. And no, they don't mm-hmm. like each other. And as listeners <laughs> know, if they listened to the last episode, Helgi Esbjarnason has finally decided to make a move against the outlawed Helgi Droplogerson and his brother Grimm. He's gathered mm. his supporters and is on his way to attack them. And we're going to be picking up our narrative with a showdown between the saga's major figures. Oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, the story of Helgi Esbjarnason and the Droplogersons continues to be the backbone of the saga, but along the way we'll also be meeting some worthy secondary figures. Thorkel the gloomy poet, Aww. a skilled warrior and a true if unlucky friend. And the first god. Arnold the blind. Yeah, it's true. Uh, a man of myster- Arnold the blind is a man of mysterious loyalties. And Thord Cormorant, a man with a sack of troubles. Mm. All right. Enough stalling, John. We've got an ambush to discuss. Part five. Drop Laugusons. Come out and play. Yay. It's a Warriors <laughs> reference. Yeah. Really? Hey, if you don't like it, you can take over naming these sections anytime. No, no, no. I like this one. Uh, plus, they're, they're, they're kind of a valuable insight into your mind. So I wouldn't... I wouldn't <laughs> let you, no. that, that wasn't a compliment, was it? Perspective. It depends on perspective. Um, right, right. Uh, but speaking of insights and minds, Helgi Drop Lagerson has a prophetic dream the next day. Oh, now that's a segue. Thank you. But a little too quick because we still need to set the stage. Oh, okay. Well, do it quickly. There's a great big battle coming up. I don't want to miss it. Oh, it, it happened a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> but all right. So in our last episode, Helgi and Grimdorp Lagerson agreed to help their cousin Ronveig Bresting divorce her husband, Thorgrim Skincap. Yeah, and it was risky because Helgi is currently under a sentence of minor outlawry for killing his own stepfather. Mm-hmm. And his enemy, Helgi Esbjarnason, is looking for any opportunity to use that outlawry to kill Helgi and attack Grimm for harboring an outlaw. But despite that, the trip to Ronvegs went pretty well and the divorce mm-hmm. went through. But in a bit of petty nastiness, uh, Ronveg ended the divorce by throwing her now ex-husband, skin caps, clothes, into their cesspit. Before riding away <laughs> with the Droplogersons. Right. We left off last time with Skincap having borrowed new clothes from his neighbor. And he then took some revenge by running to tell Helgi Esbjarnason that the Droplogersons were on the road and traveling with only a small band of friends. And so now we pick up with the Droplogersons riding home, unaware that Esbjarnason is racing to collect supporters and intercept them before they can return to the safety of their farm. Right. And they were unaware. But then Helgi has this dream one night while they're on the road. And the dream isn't a happy one. No, they rarely are. It's true. Why don't saga figures ever dream of puppies in sunshine? <laughs> this this dream is of a pack of 18 or 20 wolves attacking the Droplogersons on the road. Hmm. They can't escape, and one wolf climbs up Helgi's body and into his teeth. And then wow. he wakes up. 
Well, you know, John, to be fair, that is kind of a puppy dream. It's got dogs in it, at least. <laughs> it's a damn scary wolf dream is what it is. Yeah. And uh, Drop Loggerson decides to share it with his friends as they make their way back home from the divorce court. Now, once he hears the dream, Helgi's friend Thorkel Gloomy Poet decides to stay with him for the entire trip instead of turning around to head home. Mm. As Helgi says, it's a great proof of friendship, and it means that Helgi has nine men all together in his party, including himself and his brother Grimm. Right. Now, Grimm's been pretty quiet up till now. Mm-hmm. Well, all along, he's been the calm, level-headed brother, right? Mm-hmm. But he's the one taking care of the farm and the family honor, while Helgi's been off picking fights with chieftains. Yeah. Um, if we haven't been talking about him, it's because he's been keeping the brother's livelihood and fortunes together, while his brother indulges in nearly decade-long obsession with undermining Helgi as Bjarnason. Yes, but Grimm is also refusing to leave his brother's side. Like mm-hmm. Thorkel, gloomy poet, He's not about to abandon Helgi in a vulnerable position. Right. That's noble, but it may also be somewhat fruitless. Uh, Their group of nine men soon spots a much larger band of 18 men running toward them, led by Helgi Asbjarnason. The Droploggersons are able to reach a small hillock just as their enemies reach them. The hillock is surrounded by snow, with a snowdrift on one side and a river running behind it. And the author offers the quietly ominous comment, These days the hill is overgrown with brushwood, and there's also a small cairn of stones where they fought. Hmm. So something or someone's going down here. And it's mm-hmm. important enough to merit a memorial. Right. And what follows is a rare chance for us to really dig into a battle from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it, it's a well-described battle. And even though there's actually still a fair amount of the saga to go, this feels like a climax to everything that's happened up to this point. Yeah, and no, I think it is. And and both sides seem to recognize the finality of this battle. There's no banter, no back and forth, no insults. They just rush one another and start hacking away. Uh, we should probably warn you that if you're bothered by graphic depictions of violence, uh, maybe put down your meatball hero for the next few minutes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's bound to get bloody, and I see what you did there. It's a full-on brawl with nearly 30 men, most of them accomplished fighters. Mm-hmm. At the outset, the Drabloggersons are side by side and, and target Asbjarnason immediately. They aim spears at him two at once. Grimm's spear pierces Asbjarnason's shield and Helgi's cuts into his leg and slides down the bone, splitting the leg open all the way down to his foot. See? I told you to stop eating. The injury means that Asbjarnason's out of the fight before it begins, and his friend Bjorn the White has to carry him away from the battle. So that's two men down on Asbjarnason's side. Right, three actually. Uh, another of Asbjarnason's supporters, Ozur, refuses to fight and goes and sits down next to Asbjarnason. And and why can't he fight? What's his problem? Yeah, yeah, it's not that he can't; he won't. He's related by marriage to Asbjarnason, but he's also what we would call a godfather to Helgi Droplagerson. Ah. He sprinkled holy water on him at Helgi's naming as a baby, and he doesn't want to spill blood on either side of this conflict, so he's benching himself. So now it's 15 men against nine. Still decent right. imbalance there. Yeah. Now, as Bjarnason has a man named Thord Cormorant, he's a sneaky type. Right? While everybody else is focused on the main battle, Cormorant slips into that icy water of the stream behind everyone and comes up alongside the hill with his clothes frozen to his body. Kind of a Ragnar Lothbrok move, using icy clothes as armor. Well, I mean, it would be if it had worked. Uh, Cormorant is sneaking up on Helgi Droplagerson, but when he comes around the snowdrift, Helgi spots him and throws a spear at him. And (laughs) there's no nice way to explain this, so I'll just read it. Helgi's spear pierced through Cormorant's scrotum, and he fell backwards, and the spear stuck fast in the snowdrift. 
Cormorant hung there on the snowdrift for the whole day. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's pretty bad. It yeah. cries out for 80s action movie jokes. Or, Take your ball and go home. <laughs> oh, come on. I wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. No, Sorry, Thor, no. you're sacked. That one's all right. <laughs> yeah, that one probably sounds better as Arnold Schwarzenegger, though. I had to do it. He's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a sticks and stones joke here somewhere, but mm. we have to move on. Yeah, when I was reading this saga, I got to this paragraph and had to put it up on social media. I was so shocked by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was focused <laughs> on the spear through the scrotum. And well, I mean, yeah, of course you were. That kind of thing tends to capture a guy's attention. It does. And I'm sure it captured Thor's attention. Uh, but Steve <laughs> Edwards on Twitter pointed out that the last line, Cormorant hung there on the snowdrift for the whole day, makes it so much, much worse. Uh, you, you wouldn't think it would be possible to make something like this worse. But uh, yeah, it's pretty gruesome. And this is why it's so important to wear protection into battle. Where, protection? Like, yeah. like an athletic cup? Yeah, maybe get a half a coconut or something. <laughs> and he hung there on the snowdrift for the whole day. It's awful. He's just riding that spear. After the battle's done and everyone walks away, mm. there he is. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to move at that point either, so it makes sense. Right. But. Okay, if we can all uncross our legs and move on, this is really Mm -hmm. a nicely visualized battle and well-described. There's a lot going on here, and the action's clearly delineated Mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. And the attrition is important, as Bjarnason's lost the element of surprise, and the Droplogersons have the better defensive position. Strength of numbers is really the only advantage he's got left, and it's not working for him. No, it's not. I mean, no one's died yet, but he's down to 14 men, and the defenders haven't lost anyone. So only a few seconds into the battle, as Bjarnason has to call out to his men to regroup and organize themselves, he sends two brothers, Hirandi and Kari, to attack Helgi Droplogerson, the sons of Halstein, to attack Grim Droplogerson, Sigurd the Norwegian and his Norwegian companion Onund, to kill Thorkel Gloomy Poet, and the rest of the men to attack the Droplogerson supporters. Right. Now, and the first man to actually be killed is Onund the Norwegian. I, of course it is. I mean... Right. <laughs> this guy is a Norwegian man's Norwegian companion. He never had a chance, did he? Sigurd the Norwegian, no. on the other hand, at least has a reputation as a great fighter, so he's got an outside shot of surviving. Right. Well, I mean, he does manage to kill Thorkel Gloomy Poet, but he gets badly wounded in the process. Ah, but he's still alive, mm. uh, and that counts for something. So the number of active fighting men is now 12 to 8, as Bjarnason's advantage is still dwindling. Right. Now... At this point, Helgi the Lean, who's a Droplogerson supporter, intercepts Kari before he can attack Helgi Droplogerson. More Helgis. All right. Yeah, uh, don't worry. Helgi the Lean kills Kari, but he's too badly wounded to continue, so he's out. And it's 11 to 7 suddenly. Right. And meanwhile, Grim Droplogerson finds himself fighting alone against three men. The two Halstonsons, uh, Thorkel and Thorod, and a farmhand of Asbjarnason's. There's so much going on in this section that the author just skips over the fight among these guys. But it's actually the culmination of an important subplot in the saga. Oh, yeah. Uh, You should probably explain this part real quick. Well, Thorod and Thorkel are the Halsteinsons. They had a third brother, Eindridi, who uh, already died overseas. And they're important because they're the sons of Halstein of Bretal. Right. And that's the Halstein Droplog was married to. That's right. Uh, so this is the one Helgi and Droplog conspired to kill. That's the one, yes. We covered that in the first episode. Right, which means that these Halstonsons 
They're Grimm's stepbrothers. Yes, they are. And they're looking for revenge for their father's death. Right. Now, the irony here is that Grimm is the only member of his family who wasn't involved in the killing of Halstead. Mm -hmm. But that's probably not worth bringing up when these guys are running at them with their axes out. Hey, guys. Long time no see. Wait. I didn't kill your... Uh (laughs) Yeah, no. Uh, A reunion and airing of grievances is extremely unlikely. Uh, And on the other hand, a vicious brawl is extremely likely. And as I said, Mm -hmm. we don't get the details of this fight, but it's bloody. And when it's over, both the Halsteinsons are dead and the farmhand and Grim Droploggerson are both mortally wounded. Uh Uh-oh. That's a great loss for Helge Droploggerson. Grim just got into the saga, really. Yeah, I know. Falling in battle. We hardly knew ye. (laughs) But from a strictly actuarial standpoint, Grim did well for himself. He took out three men, and the sides are now eight to six. Uh, Well, it's actually less than that. While Grim was going down fighting, Helge fought a young warrior named Hjarandi. Hjarandi. Fought a young warrior named Hjarandi. Helge's Mm -hmm. having trouble with his sword, and it's not biting like it should. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Uh, a servant that he told to sharpen his sword gave him the wrong sword back, and it's not as good as his usual weapon. It's almost like it was intentional. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that'll come up later, by the way. Well, nevertheless, he wounds Hiarandi by carving into the back of his knee until his blunt sword bounces off the bone. Ugh. But when he cuts Hiarandi, his guard is down, and Hiarandi manages a thrust that glances off Helgi's shield and up into his face. The mm. sword, and I know you'll appreciate this, John, the sword cuts into Helgi's face, into his teeth, and Ugh. slices off his lower lip. I, I, what can you say at this point? Yeah. This is an author who clearly revels in the details of battle. Yeah, it's very uh, it's, Homer-esque. Yeah, no, it, it's fascinating because of the verisimilitude of the details, right? In mm-hmm. Vapnafjord's saga, we had a battle with 30 men, and they were all supposedly so skilled and evenly matched that no one was hurt for a long time in the fight, right? They're all supposedly just standing around banging on each other's shields for an hour. Yeah. This author, on the other hand, shows the sloppiness and the horror of battle. Mm-hmm. Quick exchanges. The injuries are suffered in a moment, and they end a life or change bodies forever. Yeah, and Helgi's response to his injury is classic saga stuff. It's what notable witticisms are all about. He mm-hmm. says, Well, I was never beautiful, but you've made little improvement. Well, he's, he's speaking awfully clearly for a man with no lower lip. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I was never beautiful. But you made little improvement, <laughs> Mr. Uh, now Gumby. Now suddenly, he's, <laughs> I was going to say, one of the Gumbies now, Helgi Gumby. Yeah. Uh, but then, this is the coolest part. He stuffs his beard into his mouth to mm-hmm. stop the flow of blood and presumably to keep his jaw in place. See? The practical value of a good beard. That's right. Uh, yeah, so now he's got a mouthful of blood, beard, and broken teeth. And he's the winner of the fight. He's the winner. Like you said, this author's not pulling any punches, and neither is Helgi. Hjorandi's down, Helgi's still standing, and it's seven to six now. And there are a few other fights going on around them. Uh, another of Drop Lagerson's supporters is killed. Several more of Asbjarnason's men are injured. And eventually, there are only a couple of uninjured men left standing on each side. And now, Helgi Drop Lagerson spots Helgi Asbjarnason, who's sitting in the uh-huh. snow and trying to staunch the blood flowing from his leg. His leg was split in half, really, so Mm -hmm. you can understand. Uh, Helgi drops his blunt sword and picks up his brother Grimm's much better weapon. And he calls out, Grimm, the man I was best disposed to has fallen. And surely my namesake Helgi wouldn't want us to part just like that. Mm. And he runs through the bloody, churned up snow, right to where Helgi Esbjarnason is sitting. 
Right, but Asbjornsson's not alone, right? I mean, he's got Bjorn the White and Ozer with him. Sure, but Bjorn's busy taking care of Asbjornsson's injury. Right, not sure, sure. Uh, so, which means the only man standing between the two Helgis is Ozur, who's chosen to stay out of the fight rather than hurt either one of them. Yes, and he's an in-law to Esbjarnason, but godfather to Droplogerson. And now he's the last man standing between the two of them, and one of them is about to die. I mean, it's beautifully orchestrated, right. this whole fight. It really is. Uh, and Droplogerson calls out to him as he comes. I'll not guard myself against you, Ozer, because you sprinkled me with water at my name-giving. And Ozer has only a second to make his choice. The saga continues. Ozer's solution was that he lunged at Helgi Drablogerson with his spear, so that it went right through him. No! Well, we said one of them had to die. I know, I was being dramatic. Ah, well, like a slow motion. <laughs> the saga is actually plenty dramatic on its own, because Helgi doesn't die right away. Yeah. Instead, check this out. He starts pushing himself up the spear. Yeah. And as he reaches closer to Ozor, he says, Now you betrayed me, Ozor. Oh, it's horrifying. As Helgi shoves his way toward Ozor, drooling blood and spitting teeth, he raises his sword. And Ozor is understandably terrified. He shoves the spear and Helgi with it backward to avoid being decapitated. And Helgi, still impaled on the spear, staggers out into the snow and finally falls dead to the ground. Now, no one ever really stops to ask why Ozer made the decision to stop Helgi Droplogerson. No, no, they don't. Do you have a theory? Well, sort of. Uh, this is, it's new to me, but it's kind of a, <laughs> this is a moral <clears throat> quandary. It's, it's a Sophie's choice. Well, sure. I mean, or Kobayashi Maru, depending on your frame of reference. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, well, of course, yes. But I, I'm referencing uh, the Academy Award-winning films, and you're referencing Star Trek, so it's a difference. Well, one of us had to class up the operation. You're welcome, <laughs> by the way. Well, either way, someone Ozer owes loyalty to is going to die. Sure. But only one of those two is making an active decision at this moment, the active decision to attack another person. Right. And given only a second to decide who to save, Ozer chooses to protect and defend a wounded man. So there's mm. no good way out of this situation, but Ozer's choice makes moral sense in some ways, mm -hmm. especially from a later Christian perspective, which someone like our author Thorvald is, is writing from. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a bit like that uh, conundrum of a man at the railway switch who has to decide whether to save five workers by diverting a train onto another track so that only one man will die. That's right. But either way, someone dies, and the moral question is whether it's better to act or not act. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Ozer is a man of action. And Helgi's last words before he dies. Now I delayed, while you, on the other hand, hurried. Mm. It's kind of an acknowledgement that it was foolish to expect Ozer to do nothing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think there's also another religious element which uh, dovetails with what you're saying. Ah, because of the anointing imagery, you think? Yeah, exactly. Anointing, um, yeah. Yeah, when what Ozer's done is defend his chieftain and in-law by killing a man he'd essentially baptized, or at least conducted a baptism equivalent with. Mm -hmm. We don't have to look very hard here to find the tension between a pre- and post-Christian Iceland. Or the tensions between different kinds of allegiance. Sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and I'd argue that Ozer's decision is only more poignant for a 13th century audience. The sagas are nostalgic by default, and looking back, and they celebrate a culture that seems to have been lost. In Killing Droplogerson, Ozer puts the requirements of that culture into dramatic conflict with the expectations of a Christianized audience. Oh, that's brilliant. 
Ah. And, and and that's the end of an absolutely epic battle and really the end of the first mm. half of the saga. Um, we would have stopped here in the previous episode, but obviously the battle takes a while to get through. Right. Both sides are going to begin helping their wounded and collecting their dead. And uh, they're going to leave Thor there in the snowdrift uh, right. where he's been pinned all afternoon. Yeah, Thor's injury is probably the most embarrassing, but everybody's in bad shape. Mm-hmm. Of the 27 men who started the fight... All but two are seriously injured or killed, and five men are dead on each side. And among the dead are both Droplagrisons. Hmm. Or are they? Part 6. Grim News. Now the survivors of this battle start spreading the word of what happened. Helgi the Lean, who survived his injuries, rides to tell the Droplagrisons Aunt Groa about their deaths and she and her son Bard ride out to collect the bodies. After she sees them, Groa orders that two bodies be buried at the spot of the battle, a farmhand of Thorkel Gloomy Poets, and mm-hmm. a Norwegian who'd been in the Droplagerson's party. Right, now meanwhile, Helgi and Grimm are put on a sledge along with Thorkel Gloomy Poet, and brought back to Groa's farm at Avendara for a vigil and burial. But she rides alongside Grimm Droplagerson's body, and she makes sure he's not jostled on the trip. No, she's up to something. What? No, no, nothing to see here. I don't want to go on the cart. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not dead yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes. Groa's spotted that Grimm isn't actually dead. He's just very badly hurt (laughs) and unconscious. Well, I, uh, we should uh, be clear, though, that I think if, if I remember the, when I read this saga, that the author doesn't announce or, or let us in on that yep. as yep. it goes. No, it's, it's, it's a little bit later that we find out. Yeah, no, this this psych out that we're now doing is exactly – we're reflecting the one in the saga. Mm-hmm. Like He just treats it as if Grimm died in that battle. He's listed yeah. among the dead until Groa finds, finds him and realizes he's alive. Well, it doesn't say Groa fi- realizes he's alive until well, no, it doesn't say she, that. But we're 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 seeing now what happens, right? She yes. pieces it together. When she gets back to the farm, Groa immediately rides to her friend Alfgard the Healer and tells her the news. Alfgard comes at once, treats Grimm's wounds, and then smuggles him, still unconscious, to her home. We should give Thorvald Ingelson credit for a major fake out here. Usually, mm-hmm. when something like this happens, it's hinted pretty broadly that the so-called dead man isn't. But mm-hmm. there's no hint that Grimm's still among the living. He's listed among the dead twice in the saga, and it's only mm-hmm. when Groa takes extra pains over his corpse that we start to suspect that something's up. Really, right. And the really fake-out well continues. Yeah. Um, as far as everyone else is concerned, both Droplagersons are laid to rest in a burial mound at Avendar. Ah, but the second body, which is probably wrapped in a shroud, is actually Thorkel Gloomy Poet. Mm-hmm. The narrator never acknowledges this, but Groa's done a fantastic job of muddying the waters for those who yeah, no, she, investigate the situation. Right. She's playing a shell game. Right. She's hidden Grimm by burying the bodies from the fight in two different places. Right. No one knows mm. the Norwegian guy who's buried at the battle site. He's never even named. He has no local family to come looking for him. She buried him next to Thorkel's friend. Everyone will assume that Thorkel is the second body buried there. And then, under the guise of showing respect to Thorkel's corpse, she's managed to get an extra body back to her farm. So when she Mm -hmm. buries two bodies on her property, everyone thinks they're the bodies of her two nephews. Right. Why would she be burying Thorkel Gloomy Poet there? Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, she's run the errand to the healer herself, so no one but her and Elfgaard know that Grimm is still alive. Nah. The only weakness to this plan is that other people have to be involved in the mound raising. 
So Groa chooses her son and a trusted servant to be the only two present at the burial. Right. Now, unsurprisingly, that's eventually going to be a problem. But in the meantime, Groa's shell game keeps Grimm safe for the winter while he slowly recovers from his injuries. And when the news does eventually get out, it's confused and uncertain. One of Groa's mm-hmm. servants says Grimm is alive, but another says he's dead. And that uncertainty is another effect of Groa's trickery. Mm-hmm. Most of her servants do think Grimm's dead. So when the one who knows differently shoots his mouth off, the other thinks that he's wrong and they say so. Right, which means the rumor mill isn't providing reliable information and the drop Lagerson's enemies remain off balance. Yeah. Yeah, if we if we go back to the previous episode when when Helgi killed the servant who plotted the death of uh, of Halstein, uh we, mm-hmm. we start to understand why it's important to kill the servants that you you plot with, right? Right. Cuz they're going to spoil right, it. They're going to be point. plotting. Yeah. Mhm. Anyway, we have to shift over to Helgi S. Bjarnason now to see what right, the, okay. the other reasons for this might be. So the last time we saw him, as Bjarnason was sitting in the snow and trying to keep from bleeding out from that leg wound. Mm-hmm. Remember, Helgi Droplagerson had split as Bjarnason's leg open from knee to ankle. And so as Bjarnason missed the fight. Unsurprisingly, Helgi had to be helped away from the battle. He manages mm-hmm. to get home to his farm, where he spends an entire winter recovering from his injuries. Yeah, well, he's also got a newfound nervousness. Yeah. He's worried about those rumors that one of the drop loggers didn't survive the fight. And so he has an entirely new bedroom built onto his house at Miovaness. And that's before he even knows for sure what's going on. In the mm-hmm. spring, he learns for sure that Grimm has indeed survived when Grimm rides away from Alfgar the Healer's farm to stay with his cousin, Thorkel Gateson. And at that point, uh, he sells his farm, uh, buys land in an area where he's surrounded by his own supporters, and has a locked bedroom built into the farm there. His wife, Thordis, finally asks him what's going on, and Helgi mm. responds with this verse. In the forest, when darkness falls, at the join between day and day, gently I bear forth a giant's wave. I have many a grim foreboding that trees of the sea kings encounter. Men who engage in conflict will seek me with the battle-ready staff of the corpse's brook. And in case anybody was having trouble following the logic of these poems, we should probably do a little explaining. Well, who could have trouble with that? Giants, waves, (laughs) bearing trees over corpse brooks. Pretty easy stuff, John. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This is a little obscure even by our normal standards, and the original Norse is not much better. Uh, but we should point out that verses aren't normally a major part of these sagas set in the northeastern part of Iceland. No, it's been Thorvald a while since we've seen poetry, yeah, actually. Yeah, no. Uh, Thorvald, our author, is adding these verses. Or a later interpolator is sticking them in, which is not uncommon. Right. Well, yeah, that's that's absolutely possible. Or that. Um, the other verses which come later don't make a lot of sense narratively either. So it's a real possibility that they're a later edition. Um, but all the northeastern sagas, and there are a lot of them, share this tendency to shy away from including verses. But you were going to try to explain what Helgi's verse means, so let's, oh, right. let's okay. do that. Uh, so the upshot is that Helgi is afraid of men seeking revenge over the killings, and he's beginning to see things, which is making him more nervous. He's acting paranoid. Right, or traumatized, yeah, uh, which is understandable under the circumstances, right? but it's not an, a common response to danger in the sagas, or at least it's rarely this overtly acknowledged. Well, I mean, there's a fine line that saga warriors have to walk between being cautious and looking cautious. Thordis mm-hmm. is questioning, 
and, and Helgi's answer suggests that he's crossed that line and that he's too unbalanced to maintain the illusion that he's unbothered. Yeah. Uh, this is the point that William Ian Miller makes too, and he compares it to the behavior of Guthman the Powerful in the Yolsvetning saga, who becomes the, uh, who becomes the mm. object of mockery for his yeah. anxiety about reprisals from his enemies. And Grimm's behavior isn't doing anything to relieve Helgi's mind. He spends several years resting at Thorkel Gatison's farm, and in all that time, he never smiles or laughs. Yeah, he's dealing with the trauma of losing his brother and, and, and many close friends. Sure, sure. And, and true to his personality, he's doing it more quietly and staying close to home. So in our last saga, Volpenfersinger uh, saga, we talked about mm-hmm. a chapter late in the saga where Grimm and Helge Drablogerson had visited Thorkel's farm and tried to help him seek revenge against Bjarni Helgeson for the death of Thorkel's father. Mm-hmm. Chronologically, this second visit must come after the end of that saga. Definitely, yeah. Um, but it's about to come to an end. Thorkel has to leave on some legal business, and Grimm remains behind to look after the farm. But soon after Thorkel leaves, his wife, Jorun, finds Grimm dressing for a journey. And he says he has to collect a debt from a farmer in Jokelsdal. And experience has shown that he does not want to pay. And Jorun says, I'll make up this debt to you. Don't you go traveling. But then he won't pay. I love that line. Uh, Again, Grimm's been in his brother's shadow for the first part of the saga, but now we're being reminded that he has a reputation as the stronger and steadier of the brothers. Grimm's also more of a long-range planner than his brother is. He meets up with two friends of his, Glum and Thorkel Crane, and -hmm. the three of them travel to the area near Helgi's new farm. Yeah, there's a small detail in their travels that I'm really interested in. Is there? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. They make their way to Ranga, across the Lagafjord River, and then they break into a shed at a farm in Baki. Yeah, but there's this tiny moment that brings these guys to life for me. It says, They swam over the Lagafjord, taking Thorkel Crane with them. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Thorkel can't swim. They have to drag him across the river. It is a nice detail. I mean, in fact, not being able to swim wasn't all that unusual. I mean, someone like uh, Gretius Munderson, uh, who can swim long distances, is regularly able to show up in places where he's not expected to be simply because it doesn't seem to occur to anyone that he might actually swim there. It's true. <laughs> uh, but this is more about def- avoiding detection, right? They're avoiding the roads, but the result is the same. Right? They have to. We, we learn about who can and cannot make their way through water. The three men steal some shovels and dig a hidey hole near a brook in Odmarslak, just in case they need it later. And like I said, Grimm's a long-range planner. And now mm-hmm. Grimm, Glum, and Thorkel Crane walk to Helgi's farm where they hide in a cowshed and watch what's happening. Right. And what they see is what we might call relevant to their interests. <laughs> uh, an important supporter of Helgi's named uh, Ketalorm of Hrolagstadr is staying at Helgi's farm with 30 of his men. And that's not good. Yeah, but because he's a good people. host, Helgi gives his bed to Ketalorm. So he and his mm. wife will be sleeping in the unlocked main room of the farm that night. Ah, see, that is good. Yeah, I, I start to wonder if uh, Helgi's really doing it just because he's a good host or if maybe he has some <laughs> other thoughts in mind. Um, mm. But it's it's time for the attack. Uh, Gloom slips into the cowshed and ties the cow's tails together. Uh, oh, mm. and it's important at this point to also say that we, we learn why Grimm and Gloom dragged Thorkel Crane across the river. Yeah, he's a sneak. Yeah, he's very stealthy. A stealthy Mm. man who can slip in and out without being seen. Uh, But he can't swim. (laughs) Very sneaky on land. That's right. Not in the water. (laughs) So Crane sneaks into the actual farmhouse twice. 
once mm-hmm. to steal the sword that belonged to Grimm's brother Helgi when Helgi had brought it to be sharpened and was given a, a dull one right, in, his, in right. his place. And then again he goes in after dark to learn exactly where Helgi Esbjarnason is sleeping. All right. We can call it stealthy if you like that better. How do you feel about assassin hmm. as a term? Because once everyone's asleep, Grimm tells Thorkel to stealth right back into the house with the sword and attack Esbjarnason. There's something very dishonorable mm-hmm. about all of this, but... Uh, it's a strange move by Grimm, either way. We'd normally read this sort of thing as the act of someone who's afraid to commit violence. And in this culture, that's a cowardly behavior. And certainly sneaking in and trying to kill someone in their sleep mm. is cowardly behavior. Especially from someone out to avenge a family member. This is supposed to be public. Well, I mean, it's certainly unusual. Right. And Grimm's friends see it that way, too. Thorkel accepts the sword, but he's a little weirded out by all this. I don't want you to interpret this as meaning that I fear to go where Helgi is, but I find this strange in view of what you've said about allowing no one to avenge your brother but yourself. He doesn't sound like a sneaky guy. (laughs) (laughs) But he's being diplomatic. I don't want you to interpret this. Can we do a little Peter Lorre? No, we're we're good. And that's about as diplomatic a way of accusing someone of cowardice as there is. But, (laughs) But Grimm just says, My reason is that it won't seem to me past all hope that my brother Helgi will be avenged as long as I survive. Well, I mean, which means what to Thorkel? Is this a suicide mission? (laughs) It does kind of sound that way, doesn't it? You go in, and if you die, I'll take over. Right. Uh, After he kills you. (laughs) Yeah. It's also possibly a statement about the difficulty of killing a guy like Helgi. Mm. Or it's a plan in that Grimm might want to have plausible deniability later. But Mm. however you think of it, It's not a great look for Grimm. He's definitely assigning the major risk to someone else. Well, we've said before that Grimm is a methodical thinker, but he's never been accused of cowardice. And I don't think it actually is cowardice. I think he's just coming up with the best plan, and it's not occurred to him until this moment that it might be seen as kind of a weaselly way of avenging a brother. Yeah, but he clearly gets it now, and he Mm -hmm. explains himself. He says, You're a decent person, Thorkel, but it's not certain that you will inflict as deep a wound on Helgi as I'd wish. So let it be as you said, that no one will take vengeance for my brother but me. Mm-hmm. And he takes back the sword. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's clearly, he's understood that he that his plan ended up making him look bad. Yeah. Uh, but because he is a careful thinker, he's got a plan. Dare I say, a cunning plan for this scenario as well. Yeah, well, you keep running into cunning plans that actually work lately. It's, it's I know. Awkward. Well, let's see how he does this time. Well, he takes off his shoes, removes his coat untucks his shirt. Oh, and he he grabs a short, round stick which he carries with him. It's a cunning plan that's a little obscure, but okay. Uh, And once he takes back the sword, Grimm is committed to violence. He's also committed to ripping off Gisli Saga. (laughs) You know, if you think about (laughs) it. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. This might sound familiar. clearly similar to Gisli's murder of Thorgrim Gothi and Gisli Saga. Mm -hmm. Uh, Briefly told, Grimm sneaks into the sleeping house approaches the bed of Helgi and his wife Thordis, and feels around until Helgi asks Thordis why she's groping him. Then Grimm whispers, Stay awake now, Helgi. That's enough sleeping. And stabs him through with the sword. See, that was easy. Well, up to that point it was easy. But Helgi isn't dead, and he Uh. begins shouting for help. Well, fortunately, Grimm's planned for this. And he throws the stick he carried in over to the fireplace where it knocks Mm. over a bunch of firewood. And in the dark, everyone hears that and runs that way. Brilliant! Yes, well, almost everyone, you see. Yeah, almost. Uh, yeah, there's there's one man in the room who's not thrown by the lack of light. 
Arnod, a blind man who's known for his strength, isn't confused by the darkness or fooled by the noise. He hears Grimm heading away from the sounds, grabs him in a bear hug and shouts, Over here! I'm holding the miserable wretch! Now this is the point where the rest of Grimm's preparations actually start to pay off. He oh, shouts he had right a reason back for being barefoot. I will we'll see. Damn you and your holding of me. Let go. I wanted to avenge Helgi. And when Arnold runs a hand over Grimm, he realizes that he's barefoot and wearing only a shirt. I love that line. It, it's the payoff for all of our headaches up to this point trying to keep the two Helgis straight. I wanted to avenge Helgi. Yeah, I like that one too. I mean, it's always better to tell the truth if one possibly can. And sure. Grimm's outfit is also a misdirection, obviously. Yeah, I mean, he's dressed like someone who just got out of bed. Exactly. But when he lets Grimm go, Arnold says, I let go because I would have no way of knowing that it would have been better if I had held on. Yeah, now that's an ambiguous statement. I assumed you'd have some things to say about this. Sure do. Uh, I mean, for starters, there's obviously a narrative set up here, but it's not entirely clear who's being set up because the light level in the room isn't made clear. Did Grimm dress in a night shirt because the room would be dark and so anyone who grabbed him would be fooled by his clothing? Or is this a trickster thing? In other words, is it narratively convenient that Grimm's disguise is specific to fool the one sightless person in the room, the one who happens to grab him? Exactly. So the question is whether the narrative sets up Arnon as a figure limited by his impairment and thereby fooled, or whether his reliance on his keen hearing means that he's the only one who isn't fooled by Grimm's trick on the others. Ah, and and then what about Arnold saying, I would have no way of knowing that I should have held on. Mm. Is he letting Grimm go on purpose? Well, I mean, that's a good question as well, right? I mean, is he is he talking about how others are going to perceive it? Right? Everyone else would suspect that I should have held on, but how was I to know? Uh, I, I don't want to get too bogged down here, but let's leave it that Arnott is a man whose motives are hard to discern, and he may or may not be sympathetic to Grimm and Grimm's action. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, but I, I, the way I read it is that he's saying, I wouldn't want to have delayed someone from avenging Helgi Espiarnason, and so I let him but, go. Right, but I would have no way of knowing that I should have held on. Well, again, I don't think that implies any kind of... Who's to... You know, how's, how could anyone blame me for letting you go? Because he's dressed in a nightshirt, he's probably from the house, and he's Understood. trying to pursue the, uh, the guy yeah. that killed Helgi, right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that Arnod doesn't know that he's got Grimm. Mm, I'm going to disagree with you there, but like you said, yeah, we don't want to get right bogged ahead. down. Yep. So, where were we? Uh, well, Grimm is running for the door right now, I think. Ah, that's right. So, Grimm runs for the door. Gloom and Thorkel lock it behind him to slow pursuit, and they're off. They end up hiding out in their dugout cave, the hidey hole, as you called it, for uh-huh. a night and a day while Helgi's men look everywhere for them. Yeah, and in the meantime, Helgi as Bjarnason dies slowly and painfully of his wound. Mm. Grimm has taken his revenge. Okay. Now, let's hit pause for a second, shall we? Pause? Not, no, not you, the listeners. Keep listening. Ah. <laughs> All of this is obviously so closely parallel to Gisli's saga. And if mm-hmm. you haven't read that saga or listened to us talk about it in a while, Gisli sneaks into the farm, feels around in the bed of Thorgrim Gothi and his wife. Right, who's also named Thordis, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true. Uh, but probably not relevant at all. Anyway, so <laughs> okay. Gisli accidentally wakes first Thordis and then Thorgrim. Once he knows where Thorgrim mm-hmm. is in the bed, he stabs him through with his spear. Right. So the question is, 
If they're so similar, which came first, the Gizli or the Grimm? Pretty much. The more usual position is that Droplogerstunder Saga is using Gizli as a source, and that this episode is deliberately built on the sequence in Gizli Saga. Right, and of course that's an important issue if you're interested in when the sagas were written. If we're trying to date the two sagas and Droplogerstunder is borrowing from Gizli... Droplogerstunder is usually read as an earlier saga, which means that Gizli mm-hmm. must have been even earlier than that. Right, which is important because Gizli Saga is a sophisticated and tightly written saga. It suggests a saga art that's already fully matured. So either the sagas are a fully formed tradition from a period before they're written down, which favors an oral tradition of saga stories, Mm -hmm. uh, or the author of Gizli is some kind of prodigy and way ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to writing these things. Or third option, the conventional wisdom is wrong, and Droplogerson isn't based on Gizli. Well, I mean, it could be the other way around. The Gizli author might have borrowed the episode from the Droplogerson author. You mean from Thorvald Ingildsen? Uh, Thorvald Ingildsen, I do indeed. Uh, but mm-hmm. by the way, Christensen thinks that that's the order of the text with the Droplogerson saga coming first. Hmm. Yeah, see, the tricky part is that both of these are pretty widely known texts and are attested in several other sagas. Uh, this is how source studies gets complicated so quickly. It, it's very yep. dangerous ground to tread. It really is. We should probably back off. Uh, but there is another point to consider. It's possible that the manuscript of Droplagos and a saga that we have is an abridgment of a longer saga. Oh. Uh, John Johannesson makes that case. Uh, he says, there's a fragment survival of part of the early section of the saga, which suggests a longer, older, and simpler version of the saga. And he thinks that that's closer to the original text. So we might be oh. looking at two descendants of an earlier text. Fascinating. Out of curiosity, if they've only got a fragment of it, then how do you know it's longer? <laughs> I'll go with older. It's, well, I guess the material that there is has additional stuff in it. Hmm, sure. That doesn't, I mean, it's still just a fragment, but uh, what, what's I'm interested is- in the idea that it's longer and simpler. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, simpler, sure. Anyway. It's uh, long but- and simple is not a combination I've ever been able to master. The uh, the uh, the implication here is that this uh, text that we're reading is a revised text. Right. I mean, it's certainly turning out to be a murky one source-wise, isn't it? Hmm. Absolutely. All right. So we left Grimm and his friends hiding in a hole in the ground. Should we uh, catch up with them now? Part 7. The Telltale Bucket. Well, I mean, there's not actually a lot to say about their trip home. Uh, Grimm and Glum have to help Thorkel across waterways again, and they take a convoluted trip back to Krosavik, uh, where they return to Thorkel Gadison's farm. When they're asked the news, they say there's none to report. Presumably hiding their bloody hands and muddy shoes while they do so, right? <laughs> you don't think they washed before they entered the house? They've been swimming. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I don't know. I mean, Gisley didn't wash. Yeah, well, I'd like to think Grimm's got better sense than that. Yeah, well, and they also hung out in that little hidey hole for a couple of days. and swim, Yeah, so. Um, well, he's in a much better mood now than he was before the trip, that's for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. He challenges a Norwegian staying at the farm to a game of Neftafel, uh, and, mm-hmm. and while they're playing, one of Joran's children accidentally knocks the board over. The Norwegian kicks at the kid, who farts at him, <laughs> <laughs> and then runs away. And uh, just like us, uh, Grimm laughs yeah. and laughs and laughs. Well, I mean, can you blame him? It no. is funny stuff. I mean, if you like a well-timed blast of the colonic calliope, it's good stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I don't blame him. Uh, no one no one enjoys a cheeky lad firing off a one-gun salute more than I do. 
<laughs> well done. I knew you couldn't turn your nose up at a good flatulence joke. No. Uh, by the way, I, I went to the experts on this. I explained this scene to my kids who are five and three, and they okay. thought it was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> and that's before I tried to explain the phrase cracking a rat to them, which in retrospect is probably a mistake. <laughs> no, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Uh, okay, but if we can uh, stop gassing on for a minute, <laughs> get it? Uh, let's remember that Grimm hasn't so much as smiled since his brother's I death. To, I just want to say uh, it's amazing that we get we get like we do this for a living. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Well, we don't really because we don't get paid. I know, I know. Sorry, you were saying. Let's remember that Grimm hasn't so much as smiled since his brother's death, and the saga makes mm-hmm. a big deal out of his kind of grim nature. Right. Get it? Grim. Grim by name, uh, so, grim by nature. So Joran immediately guesses what's happened and quizzes him about what he's been up to. Mm-hmm. And he responds with a series of verses, the clearest of which is this one. Ample I imagined my vengeance on the maker of Spears' strife for Helgi's slaying. Sufficient indeed. And my mind rejoices at that. It is now for Battlekeen Bjarni. The blade bit the raven's gladner. I slew the armfire's breaker to avenge his sister's husband. So, okay, most of that is self-explanatory. Um, he's happy to have finally avenged his brother, which makes sense. And- uh, although it's not as if Helgi as Bjarnason was the actual slayer. It was Ozur who killed Helgi Droplogerson. Sure, sure. But Grimm blames Helgi, right? He was the organizer of the attack. Absolutely. And the final lines, it is now for battle keen Bjarni to avenge his sister's husband. Those may not be immediately obvious, but only because we've been buried in this saga and haven't kept up with all the links back to Vopnifrid saga. This is Bjarni Brodhelgason, isn't it? Right. A.K.A. Bjarni, my thingman from Vopnifjord. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helgi's wife, Thordis Toda, is Bjarni's sister. Uh, remember, we talked about her in nicknames last time. Yeah. Uh, that means that Bjarni is one of the people most likely to seek revenge for Helgi as Bjarnason's death. We talked last time about a sister's husband and the importance of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the saga makes a very big deal out of the uh, the family relationships, and, mm-hmm. and I put together the genealogy to help you with that. But uh, yep. here's the thing. Bjarni doesn't. Bjarni doesn't even appear on the yep. scene. He's he's too busy yeah. with some local <laughs> farmer who's been killing right. his, uh, his right. men. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is actually kind of a misdirect. And again, you know, full credit to Thorvald, the author, for, uh, you know, p- seeding these things in and, and fooling the reader a little bit. Yeah. Uh, while Grimm is busy pondering Bjarni's next move, it's actually Helgi's nephew, Hrovenkel the Gothi, who begins a legal case against Grimm. Hrovenkel. Are we talking mm-hmm. about the same Hrovenkel who once brought a suit against his uncle, Helgi, over their shared chieftaincy? That guy? The the very same. And it was actually mm. the Droplaugersons who supported him and helped him win that case. Mm. Tsk, tsk. Shame on you, Hrovenkel. I don't <laughs> think your great-grandfather, Freysgothi, would approve of this action. Well, this generation's Hrovenkel apparently believes blood is thicker than casual political alliances. Oh, and so now fair. he's after Grimm. Uh, besides, we said a while back during our discussion of Rekdala Saga that the social and legal worlds of Iceland were built on certain understandings. Uh, one of those is you're not supposed to hold grudges once a case is concluded. True, but the point of most sagas is that people do hold grudges. 
Mm. I mean, they're really good at it and it creates drama. <laughs> right. Uh, I know, but I'm talking about social ideals here, not what actually happens. <laughs> I think we can say that another ideal is that people shouldn't expect that a favor done years before pays infinite dividends. Oh, sure. I mean, that's obvious. Do you, I remember when I lent you that pen back in grad school? Oh, yes, I do remember that. I'm still <laughs> waiting for the payback. <laughs> yeah, it was a great pen. Yeah. And in, in a situation like this, Rothenkill owes a far greater loyalty to his uncle and co-chieftain than he does to the brother of a guy who helped him out in a legal case a decade ago. Yeah. I, I was just giving him a hard time. I know. But it's, it's interesting that Grimm doesn't seem to think he needs to worry about Rothenkell until the lawsuit comes. And yeah. I don't know whether to read that as Grimm's confidence in his ties to Rothenkell uh, or whether Grimm's decided that Rothenkell isn't a threat. Uh, either way, it's a mistake. Well, remember, I mean, Grimm, Grimm is a guy that hangs out at the farm and doesn't really get involved mm-hmm. in, in political affairs. Um, True, he's not really experienced. That. Yeah, but now he's kind of being swept up in it. Mm-hmm. Actually, there might be another reason that Rothenkell is so quick to get involved. Oh? Uh, we should obviously be careful when we assign subtextual motivations to the saga's characters. But in this mm-hmm. case, Rothenkell's got a second clear reason to lead the case against Grimm. He doesn't want anyone uh-huh. thinking he was part of the plan. I mean, think about this. <laughs> he did sue his uncle, mm. and there were undoubtedly some hard feelings there. And and what was he trying to get? Sole possession of the Gothard. Right, right. So it might look bad if he didn't act quickly. That's fair. Uh, although we probably need to add this is a complicated situation. Right? I mean, yes, perception is an important part of the game of honor. Hrovengel has his pride and reputation to think of. But he's also a chieftain. And again, as you say, right, he wanted that chieftaincy, but now he's got it for himself. Mm -hmm. He's taking up a cause on behalf of a family member, an ally, and a fellow member of the chieftain class, right? Helgi is all three of those. There's a lot of dynamics going on here. Yeah. Now, of course, now we've made it all sound much trickier than it actually is, haven't we? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, in the event, the case is short-lived. Thorkel Gatison tries to arrange a financial settlement, but Ravenkill won't hear of it, and Grimm is outlawed for Helgi's death. Why exactly? Why what? Why is he outlawed? I mean, how? On on what grounds? Where's the evidence that Grimm is the one who killed him? Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, it, it's pretty circumstantial. It's totally circumstantial. The, the, mm. the basic thing is, who who's most likely to have killed Helgi Esbjarnason? Right. Grimm. So right. we'll outlaw him for it. No, right. no evidence that he was actually there. I mean, we just went through the entire cunning plan and Grimm wasn't found out at any point. Mm-hmm. The only person that ever interacted with him and lived was Arnold. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't even decide whether he was sympathetic to Grimm's search for revenge, which I don't think he was, but it's possible. So acknowledging your point and, and with his sightlessness, his identification of Grimm in a lineup as the killer wouldn't mm-hmm. be likely to hold up in court. Not under the laws of the time anyway. Yeah. I think essentially it comes down to what you were suggesting before. No one else really has a reason to kill Helgi. Uh, especially not in his own home in the dark. I mean, that's pretty serious. Right? I think this is an Occam's razor situation. Someone killed Helgi. Grimm is the only one with a known grudge. No evidence points to anyone else. Elementary, my dear Watson. <laughs> okay, but uh, this is another example of how the law was often a slippery thing. Mm. We're not really told about the trial, just that Grimm is found guilty and outlawed. Although, I don't, to be honest, I don't know that Grimm would deny that he did it if asked. <laughs> right, but, but I don't know that anybody ever asks because Grimm yeah, doesn't attend well, the trial, right? Yeah, we're not really told about the trial, just that Grimm mm-hmm. is found guilty and outlawed. And yeah. everyone already knows that much before even the trial starts. Sure. And Thorkel Gatison is trying to buy a way out of the situation, as he does, 
uh, and and mm-hmm. not to prove his cousin's innocence. True, and and in fact, Grimm doesn't go to the thing. Right, uh, he knows how this what's going to happen. He takes his leave of Glum yeah. and Thorkel Crane, and hides on a hillside near Thorkel's farm. No, we're jumping into an outlaw saga. Mm. Yeah, he knows the the outcome. It's going to be guilty. Guilty. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, he did kill the guy. And yet he decides to stay in Iceland, kind of like his brother did, rather than mm-hmm. escape before the judgment can be enforced. Well, I mean, you'd want to be sure about something like that, right? I mean, usually a person who receives major or permanent outlawry isn't coming back to Iceland. So he'd have to sell his belongings, his farm, livestock, whatever he's got, and whatever he can liquidate for his journey. So he's got to hole up for a while. Right. Well, I mean, no one knows where he is apart from his friends. So as long as he's hidden, he's safe. So he's acting like an outlaw, like I said, Mm -hmm. which makes sense since he is an outlaw now. (laughs) Right. Well, the narrative treats him like an outlaw, right? I mean, Grimm becomes a hidden figure living on the fringes of society while his enemies try to hunt him down. Mm. Is he going to run into a boy tied to a rope? Uh, I can only hope. (laughs) Remember that kid? Mm -hmm. He was tied to a rope. It was a human being <laughs> tied to a rope. Helgi. <laughs> that was he his has name? a name, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you remember something we recorded like two years ago. Helgi Ingjald's Fool, if you will. Oh, wow. Very impressive. Um, anyway, of the people who are searching for Grimm, the most dangerous is Thorkel the Wise. He's a distant cousin of Grimm's, uh, but he's taking money mm. from Provenkel to find out where Grimm is hiding. Your own cousin, Thorkel. For shame. Yeah. We should also say that Grimm isn't exactly an expert at hiding, despite That's his true. hidey hole digging. Yeah. Uh, he keeps out of the sight. He keeps out of sight for summer. But in autumn, he moves further down the mountain and pitches his tent near a cairn on the lower reaches. And one day, a Norwegian merchant who's spending the season at Thorkel Gatesson's house looks up at the mountain and says, Hey, I think I see a tent or else a stone or something <laughs> up in the mountain. But I, I think it's a tent. Oh, you're a sharp-sighted one, aren't you? It's just a stone. We call it tent stone. (laughs) (laughs) They call it tent stone. (laughs) Way to cover your tracks, Thorkel. That's a brilliant thing to call him. (laughs) On the spot, Thorkel, they call him. Tent stone. (laughs) I mean, honestly, though, what was he supposed to say? He's doing his best, but he knows the Norwegian is suspicious. And the next day, he slips away and visits Grimm. Uh, it's time for Grimm to move on. Right, so he packs his things and moves to the farm of Ingjald Nithkesson, his father-in-law. Now, Ingjald's a minor figure in the saga, very minor, but he's sort of important to our story in one respect. Oh, is this, is this another Thorvald thing? Yes, yeah. Ingjald's great-great-grandson is Thorvald Ingjaldsson, mm-hmm. author of our saga. Right. So, how is Ingjald at hiding his son-in-law, the great-grandfather of Thorvald? Not very good. No. (laughs) (laughs) He does manage to cover for Grimm's activities with the local farmers, but as soon as... Well, those actually... Sorry. uh, Those activities are interesting. I mean, Grimm's doing a bit of stealing, which is no more than any outlaw does to survive, but people are Mm -hmm. also complaining about all the dirt and debris in the local brook. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's it's such an interesting saga because there's so many cool little <laughs> details. It it turns out that Grimm's been doing a little bit of excavating upriver. Yeah. Yeah, he's made himself another cave. He loves these little hidey holes. Yes, he does. Uh, but this time he's actually added, a, he's making it comfy. He's added a tunnel 
that comes up right next to the house, and in fact, right next to his wife's room, so that he can still spend the nights with her. I'm still feeling like Gisley here. He also yeah, loved to hang really out with his is. wife. Mm-hmm. But uh, who knew Grimm was a romantic at heart? Well, that's the problem. His enemies do know, or they at least suspect, that Grimm won't be far from his wife and kids. Right? We are really an outlaw narrative now. Um, and there are certain tropes we can expect. And one of them is that the outlaw's ties to his family are his weakness. And it's pretty seamless, but you're right. We've moved into a different register of saga writing. It's actually some fairly nice work from Thorvald. I agree. Most critics have read this as a somewhat clunky saga, but I think it's doing a pretty good job of introducing stock motifs without seeming self-conscious about it. Yeah, and and I feel like it's well-written the whole way Mm -hmm. through. Um, And and this next part is another trope. The spy is introduced. Absolutely. Yeah, it isn't long before Thorkel the Wise, that nefarious cousin, comes for a visit. Visit in the sense of snooping around like a, a yeah. Mr. Furley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's going on here? Where's where's Grim? Uh he uh, yeah, uh Thorkel shows up at the farm and immediately <laughs> spots Grim's 6-year-old son Thorvald. Grandpappy and namesake of our author. Yeah, it's true it is, isn't it? Uh and Thorkel asks him, "Are you Grim's son?" That's right. Uh, is your father at home? I don't know. And I wouldn't say if I did, if I did know. Why, you little... <laughs> Why, no, you uh, little... No, I mean, Thorvald done well, or at least as well as can be expected. I mean, he's yeah. a six-year-old, for goodness sake. Uh, I just love Thorkel, picturing Thorkel as, uh, as Barney Fife. As Don it Knotts. Just, it makes me so happy. <laughs> Don Knotts has such a brilliant, funny right. face. He, he belongs in the sagas. <laughs> he really does. Uh, with, a, with a false beard. Um, <laughs> it would have to be a fake one, I think. Yeah. Uh, but Thorkel, he's still lurking around for the rest of the day. And in the evening, he overhears one of the servants complaining that she can't find Grimm's bucket. Um, Should we assume that this is a food bucket or a drink bucket? Or Yeah, what, I hope so. It's the only other kind of bucket he would need. <laughs> I really want to worry about. Uh, why are you looking for Grimm's bucket in particular? Oh, the, the women call our billy goat Grimm, and he gets his water in a bucket, of course. Are you buying any of this? <laughs> <laughs> I, they're doing their best, but I mean, for obvious reasons, yeah. uh, Thorkel Roper is pretty sure he knows where Grimm is. And he uh, <laughs> he rushes off to tell Hromgill. Which means that Grimm has to move again. Yeah. Ingild and Thorkel Crane arrange passage on a ship for Grimm's entire family, with Crane going along. Yeah. Everything's arranged very quickly, and before Hrofenkel can act, Grimm, his wife Helga, their sons Thorkel and Thorvald, and their friend Thorkel Crane are all safely away on a ship to Norway. Right. Presumably with uh, Thorkel Crane, who cannot swim, looking nervously at the open water all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Uh, That's right. He can't swim. Got it. And uh, as we know from all these sagas that we've read so far, mm-hmm. ships tend to wreck on their way right, to Right, it doesn't always go well. Uh, yeah. Now, Hrovenkill is furious, but there's not much he can do. Uh, he forces Ingyal to pay a fine of three marks of silver for abetting an outlaw. But other than that, he's pretty much left to fume on the beach. Yeah, he doesn't even know where they've sailed to. Ingyal and Crane bribed everyone involved to keep their mouths shut, and th- it actually well, works. I mean, they're going to Norway. I know you know that, but... No, but they're always going to Norway. 90% of the ships leaving Iceland are going to Norway. It's at least worth checking. 
Not this time. <laughs> Provenkel's not the sort to go chasing his enemies across creation uh, or or even just to Norway. <laughs> he True. and Iceland are now out of this saga. Right. Now, this seems like we should be done. It does, right? Should we just call it? <laughs> Let's call it no. here. <laughs> well, in, in most sagas, we would be done, but... Yeah, but not quite yet. Uh, we've still got... Part 8, A Killing in Norway. So, the sea voyage is surprisingly quiet, mm-hmm. and everyone survives. I'm sure Thorkel is happy. And when they land, Thorkel Crane buys horses for all of them, and then takes his leave of them. Oh, it's a happy ending for good old Thorkel. That's nice. It's not quite an ending, because mm. we're going to see him again. But anyway. It's certainly a much happier ending than poor Gloom is going to get. Oh, yeah. Do you want to cover that now? I think we might as well. Gloom, you see, chose to stay behind in Iceland, which is a problem. Sure it is. Everyone knows. Somehow, everyone knows. I don't know how everybody knows everything about this attack, but everyone knows he was involved in the death of Helgi Esbjarnason, and now he's the only one available for a revenge killing. That's right, exactly. And he's basically walking around with a big target on his back. Mm-hmm. But as far as he knows, no one's looking for him. Oh, Glum. Poor, innocent, stupid Glum. But while everyone else was looking for Grimm and conducting lawsuits, Thordis Brod Helgadotter, the widow of Helgi, remarried to Thorgeir the Gothi. Uh-oh. And sure enough, Thorgeir uses his power and contacts to track Gloom down. And he and Thordis have him captured and killed. Yeah, and it sounds like you're skipping the good bits here, but you're not. Uh, Glum's story is exactly as long as you just said it was. Eh, It's not really Uh, worthy of a story. Well, I mean, as we get to the end of the saga, I think it becomes more and more obvious that Thorvald is writing a family history. He's really not very interested in following the other loose ends of his story. Yes, and so Glum is dead in Iceland. Poor Glum. but... Grimm and Helga are making themselves a nice new life in Norway. They spend two weeks living with a wealthy young farmer named Fingair, who has two sisters, Sigrid and Frithgerd. Uh, Grimm takes over running an extra farm of Fingair's, and they all live happily there at first. Oh no. What? You know what? Nothing good ever comes after at first. (laughs) No one ever says things like, things were going well at first. But then they got even better. <laughs> okay. No one says that. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, so a group of Vikings is operating in the area. And there's the other shoe. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Vikings are led by a man named Gauss, uh, who's got a vicious <laughs> reputation. He's already stolen two farms in the area by running off the owners. And now he decides it's time for him to settle down. Ah, uh, yeah. Settle down, Gauss. Maybe raise a few little sociopath rugrats of your yeah, own. Pretty much. You know, uh, you know what's interesting. Sort of, hold on, can I interrupt you? You know what's interesting please. is that you know everyone praises Vikings and we we love Vikings, but mm-hmm. it's worth noting that in the sagas, the term Vikings is always used for horrible people. I wouldn't say it's always. I think it's often, but yeah. you do occasionally get someone uh, who's a Viking who sort of retires and becomes a respectable member of the community. I, I'm not sure. I mean, but think about all the people that we run into. Oh, we I'd have say our more good guys. often than not. We, we have our good guys who go raiding, mm-hmm. and they're, but right. they're not called Vikings. So right. it's almost like in the sagas, the term Viking is used for like pirates or, or, or bad people. 
No, I think uh, you do get people like uh, in Ale Saga, Ale's grandfather and great grandfather are partner Vikings, right? and they're described as sort of doing their whole Viking career and then settling down and raising families. Mm-hmm. And there's no kind of ramifications for that. They're just retired Vikings. Sure. Although, you know, it, to be fair, Ale's mm-hmm. family and Ale himself well, have kind of a mixed reputation, don't they? Well, well, right, we'll, we'll get right. to that one of these days. All right, let's um, move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being the sort of charming man that he is, uh, to support your point about Vikings, uh, Gauss's entire courtship ritual is to ask Fingar's sister Frithgar to marry him. Sweet. Uh, when she says no, he moves on to plan B. He challenges Fingar to a duel to the death for the right to take Frithgard. <laughs> oh, so smooth. Oh yeah. <laughs> what a what a what a nice move. Yeah, we've we have seen this kind of thing a number of times before. Gizli Sorison had to fight a duel for his sister when her boyfriend wouldn't, for example. Right, right. And the problem is that, that Fingar is a farmer, not a warrior. Yeah, it's one of those things that's so easy to forget in the sagas, right? Not everyone was accustomed or prepared for a life of violence. Fingar is faced with the choice of letting his sister be taken by a violent bully or getting himself killed in a duel he probably can't win. And then Frithgard will be taken anyway. And he answers as best he can. He says, I'd sooner fight you than marry my sister to you. Right, which is not the same as saying I want to fight you, but it's, it's almost like saying I'd rather uh, die than marry my right, sister to you. Right, and of course the saga sort of undermines that nobility with the next line. Fingar offered people money to fight Gauss, <laughs> oh, and also go. offered to give his sister in marriage to the man who killed him. Ah, well, you know, we said he's not really a fighter. I know, but the idea that he's going to sort of hand his sister over without consulting her to whoever's willing to kill the Viking. Right. Um, It kind of undermines the idea that he's doing this for noble causes. Um, Now, the problem is that Gauss has been and his friends have been terrorizing the region for some time now, and no one's been able to stand up to them. What's needed is someone who hasn't been here very long. Someone willing to fight. Hmm. Someone like Grimm, perhaps? Hmm. Someone very much like Grimm. Well, I mean, he's married, so Frithgar mm-hmm. doesn't need to marry him if he wins. That's nice. And yep. Grimm's willing to do this as a favor to his new friend. Sure. So he meets Gauss at the dueling site, and they begin their duel. Right. Now, Grimm, uh, having gotten some information, chooses to fight with two swords in this battle. Oh. Because Gauss knows a charm that will blunt a sword edge. Well, of course Gauss does. Sure. Uh, and as it turns out, the fight is it's extremely in the Viking short. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's one of the merit badges you can earn. Yeah. Uh, Grimm simply lifts his left hand sword, drawing the blunting charm to that sword, and swings <laughs> like his right hand sword in a <laughs> right. Uh, he swings the other sword in a quick chop that cleaves Gauss's leg off above the knee. Not a bad day's work for Grimm. It's officially Miller time. Let's do it. Seventh yeah, inning. Uh, Bring out quite. Andrew Miller. Uh, Get it? It's a little <laughs> as Indians he falls, reference. Gauss. Are you making are you making Cleveland Indians references? Over there? I was, yeah. I, can, yeah. I can't help it. Yeah, I'd make a I'd make a Mets reference, but I don't want to get more depressed than I already am. <laughs> uh, no, I've got uh, hope. You've got you know the Mets. Uh, I have hope. It's for 2018. Uh, <laughs> now, as he falls, Gauss hacks away at Grimm's leg, and he causes a shearing wound that badly oh. damages the muscles of the leg. Yeah, it's pretty uh, gross. Gauss then flees, but leaves behind the silver that he put up against Frithgard's hand. Grimm keeps the silver, and in addition, Fingar gives him the farm outright. 
So, okay, there's. I have a quick question. Yeah. You said Gauss flees? Oh, right. Yeah. Obviously, fleeing with a leg hacked off is problematic. Yeah. I mean, the, the translation I consulted actually rendered mm-hmm. this as the Viking ran away, but that's clearly <laughs> not working for me. Uh-huh. So the, the old Norse is, nu fluli vikingrun. Now the Viking fled. Yeah. So, I mean, even now the Viking fled is problematic. I mean, you know, does he run away by taking one step and then sort of pitching sideways? I think um, he just hops. He's he's hopping like a, a, no, a little no. one-legged the bunny. Thing is, no, he wasn't there alone. Right? Uh, oh. Presumably, he gets away with a little help from his friends. Uh-huh. Sure. But, I mean, the question ultimately should be, does Gauss die of his wound? Do we mm-hmm. get to add him to our, our body count for the saga? Well, I mean, that's a fair question, and there is a good answer, but uh, not one we can offer right now. There are more important oh, things going on. Grimm's leg wound has gone septic. <laughs> well, folks, please, always clean out your leg wounds with plenty of water and alcohol, uh, and please don't dip fresh wounds into ponds mm-hmm. or creeks. Mm-hmm. I can't stress that enough. You're yeah, just this message is brought to you by the Greta Asmundersen Memorial Society. <laughs> Who knows where those Viking swords have been? It's really an unhygienic time. Yeah. Of, well, yeah. fortunately for Grimm, a woman is passing through the area and announces that she's a healer. She, oh. bandage, she bandages Grimm's leg and then goes on her way. I gotta say, man, this saga really underscores the need for a good healer. It does. And and this is really good luck to stumble yes, upon indeed. a healer. Yes, indeed. You, you might even say it was suspiciously good to run into you someone like that. You could say that. Uh, and when Grimm's leg suddenly swells up and the infection oh. spreads up into his abdomen, Uh-oh. everyone else says it too. Uh, it turns out that that wandering doctor was actually... Gefun, the skilled in magic. Uh, not Gefun, the skilled in magic. The very same. Who's Gefun, the skilled in magic, and where did she come from? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> uh, this is the first and only time we meet her in the saga. She's never been mentioned before this. Uh, it seems that she was Gauss's mistress. Oh, Thorvald, you're really leaving a lot of holes here. Mm, so- no, no. Her little visit was a revenge plot yep. behind the scenes. She was finishing the damage that Gauss had started. Right. I mean, the saga tells us that she was, she had been Gauss's mistress. So Gauss mm-hmm. did die. Uh-huh. Uh, so Grimm is now mortally ill from whatever horrifying thing she did to his wound. And after taking the Eucharist, he dies. Nah, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Are we sure he dies? <laughs> you fucker. Uh, about what, the Eucharist? No, 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 about the mortally ill, the, the dead parts. We we have been told that Grimm was dead before. <laughs> no, 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 he's really dead this time. Well, it's probably best if you step up and hold a mirror under his nose or something, hit him with a hammer just a few times, make be sure that he's dead because he's got a uh, reputation for coming back. Right, right. Yeah, no, he's not coming back this time. Uh, you only get mm. one resurrection per. Uh, but can we talk about this death for a minute? Uh, you know, I've got a little bit of my, uh, you know, I'm drinking the dude's rug, which is a well, quite a lovely cider. It's the first time I've is had it? it, and is it? It's it's quite good. It's got a, yeah, I'm d- it's got a picture of a bowling ball and and the dude's rug, and bowling nice. pins on it. It really it really good. brings so, the bottle together. <laughs> yes, uh, it really does. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, drinking, you know, uh, I, I want to keep drinking this. Uh, coffee porter here, which is delightful. There you go. So we've both got, a, you know, about half left. So mm. let, go ahead. 
talk right. about someone's uh, death. Well, we already talked about how this saga sort of downshifts into an outlaw tale in its last couple of chapters. Yeah, yeah. Once Grimm goes into hiding, the parallels to the other outlaw sagas are really obvious, aren't they? And even before that, the killing of Helgi Asbjarnason, we said, was a close parallel to Gisli Sursen murdering Thorgrim Gothi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even some of the details, like tying the livestock's tails to create confusion together. Uh, like tying the livestock's tails together to create confusion, uh, which doesn't actually play out in this saga. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also the groping around in the bed of the victim, the dialogue between the victim and his wife right before the killing. I mean, all that's there. Right. Uh, so I get why this saga isn't usually placed in the outlaw category, right? The outlaw well, elements be. only come at the very end of the story. Yeah, absolutely. That's why. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting all this kind of outlaw stuff crammed into just a couple of chapters, um, but it's still there. Right. But that's not where I was going with this. The end of the okay. saga with Grimm being injured and then dying from a false physician poisoning him. That puts Droplagosona saga into conversation with another outlaw tradition. This is how Robin Hood died. Oh, wow. It is, isn't it? It's very close. Here's the short version from the uh, the jest of Robin Hood. Robin dwelled in Greenwood twenty year and two. For all dread of Eberard King, a yen would he not go. Yet he was beguiled a wis through a wicked woman, the prioress of Kirkusley, that knee was of his kin. For the law of a knicked, so Rogel of Donkersley, that was her own especial, full evil mot they thee. They talk together their council, Robin Hood fall to slay, and who they micked best do that deed, his banis for to bay. Ban bespak Robin, in place where as he stood, to marry he must to Kirkusley, craft little and blood, so the Roger of Donkelstair be the prayer as he lay, and there they betrayed good Robin Hood through their false play. Such a sad ending. Mm-hmm. But okay, to be fair to our listeners, that's going to be a little hard to follow. <laughs> Sorry. I, mean, I bet you some of you had it for a while, but at, at some mm-hmm. point it probably fell apart. But uh, here, here it is briefly. Robin Hood's death in medieval versions of this legend usually occurs when Robin gets ill or injured and seeks healing from a prioress who has medical mm-hmm. knowledge. Mm-hmm. She bleeds him, but bleeds him too much out of treachery. The traditional story is that she's the lover of Robin's enemy and is bleeding him in revenge for Robin besting her lover. Right. Those references to Sir Roger of Doncaster are to her lover. And it's true. I mean, the details here match up pretty closely. Exactly. And the earliest versions of that story, the Robin Hood story, date from the 12th or 13th century. We're looking at a tradition of outlaw literature that spans Northern Europe in the later medieval period. And there's a tradition of looking across the Anglo-Scandinavian world for examples of the outlaw genre. Uh, Greta and Gisli are just the two of the best-known examples. Right. Now, there's a great anthology of medieval outlaw stories edited by Thomas Olgren that illustrates this. The collection is mostly English stories, but it also includes a Norman-French le- legend of Eustace the Monk, uh, some William Wallace legends, some Owen Glyndor stuff, and then the saga of Anne Bobender. Yeah, I've seen that one. Uh, Sean Hughes translated that one, right? Yeah, yeah. He also gives a really nice intro comparing the Icelandic and English outlaw traditions. Mm. Now, On Bowbender is a legendary saga, not one of the Islendinga sogur. So we're not mm-hmm. going to sadly be covering it as part of the usual podcast here. But uh, 
We should detour one of these days and do it as a brief, as we sometimes say. Yeah. <laughs> Add it to the list. Um, anyway, my point is that these story influences, whether they're being passed around orally or through writing, are shared widely across the North. The more of this stuff you read, the more you find the threads running through them. It's it's one of the more rewarding parts of what we do. Yes. And that's pretty much the end of our story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grimm dies from his, uh, his uh, uh, misleading physician. Uh, mm-hmm. But we do get a little coda about Grimm's family. His wife Helga returns to Iceland, sailing with Thorkel Crane once more, and brings her sons with her. One son, Thorkel takes over the family farm after the death of his grandfather, Ingjold. The other, Thorvald, later has a son named Ingjold, and Ingjold the Younger eventually has a son as well. And as the saga tells us, it was his son, named Thorvald, who told this story. Thanks, Thorvald, and thanks for getting through this short but packed saga with us. Uh, We'll be back soon with judgments for Droplogosona, and after that, we're on to the second quarter court. Amazingly, Droplogosona Saga marks only the halfway point on our journey through the sagas of Icelanders. Mm. And it only took us four years to get this far. That's right. So, (laughs) just like the first quarter court, we'll be producing a short episode in August offering candidates for the second quarter court. The winners of our judgment categories from the last ten sagas we've covered going all the way back to Viglund Saga. And you'll get to vote for the best of the best. Yep. Uh, And if there's anything you want us to cover or questions you want us to answer or information about your allergies you want to share, please continue to send those in and we'll incorporate them into the Quarter Quartz Results episode. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are at SagaThingPod, or on Facebook, where we are SagaThingPodcast, or you can find us at WordPress, where we are SagaThingPodcast, or drop us an email, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. Right. Or you can write a short note, douse it in cyanide, and hand it to the next passing evil physician. She's bound to stop by our place eventually. That is going to do it for us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Talk slower. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.